0: In your Bible, the book of Matthew, chapter number 1. And then when you find that one, why, well, go to Luke chapter 2, two traditional Christmas texts. And uh, go to those passages, Matthew 1 and Luke 2. I want to continue preaching on the Lord Jesus Christ. Every year during the Christmas season, usually during the whole month of December, I try to preach on the person and work of Jesus Christ some aspect of our Lord. And then again, during the Easter season, I try to do the same in a short series of messages because above everything, as I said a couple of weeks ago, the role of the preacher, the role of the church is to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that we do. Amen? And don't ever forget that. If you can go and hear a message and Jesus Christ is left out of it, You're going to the wrong place. I tell you, the role of the church is to be the candlestick that holds up Jesus, the light of the world. And so we, I'm trying to do that in a very special way this season. And today the subject is his virgin birth. I think it's been about seven or eight years since I preached on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. So listen carefully, maybe take a few notes so you will understand and know Uh, in detail, the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ. Stand with me, please, Matthew chapter 1, and we'll begin reading God's Word in verse number 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was like this, or on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. his wife, and knew her not till they had brought forth or till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, let's read also from Luke chapter 2 because we want to compare these scriptures. Luke 2 and 34 in your Bible. Luke 2 and verse 34. I'm sorry, Luke 1, 34. I wrote down 2 34, but I made one of those rare mistakes that I, <laughs> Luke chapter 1 and verse 34. Then said Mary unto the angel, how shall this be, seeing I know not a man? She said that in response to the angel telling her that she was pregnant. And The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Thank you, and you may be seated. The chief doctrine of the Christian faith is the deity of Jesus Christ. And to believe in his divinity, his deity, then the virgin birth becomes an essential because it required a miracle, a miracle conception and a miracle birth for God to come into the human race and for God to become a man. And so these accounts of the birth of Jesus Christ or the life of Jesus Christ actually began before he is born because it's necessary in telling the life of Christ, it is necessary we understand his conception and his birth, the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. His conception and birth have been under attack all the way back to the beginning. You remember one day, a story is recorded in John chapter number 8, that Jesus Christ was talking to the Pharisees, and they were probing him. They were They were questioning his very character and his being. And they said to him, you have been born of fornication. Even in that early time during his life, even on the earth, the allegation was made that you were born as a result of an illicit relationship. You were born of fornication. They certainly didn't believe in a virgin birth. And today, when you come down to our time, the skeptics think the idea of a virgin birth is, well, they think it's a mere super, superstition. That it's ludicrous to believe in a world of high technology, a world of scientificism, in a world like our world, it's so progressive on so many fronts. It's, it's just ludicrous to believe that a man could be born and his mother would still be a virgin. And so today, we can't, in my opinion, we can't overemphasize the virgin birth of Christ in the the Christmas story. I want you to think with me about this, number one, the scriptural basis for the virgin birth of Christ. The scriptural basis. Let's go back, familiar territory, but let's go back and review what the Bible says about this. You see, we need to do that because a virgin birth is a unique doctrine. It's something that is absolutely unknown in all human experience and in all human history. There's never been another person who was born of a virgin conceived in the womb of a woman who was a virgin. And it, so it defies the laws of nature, the virgin birth. It requires a biological miracle. The son of the highest, as he's called here in the text, is to become the son of Mary, though she had never known a man, according to verse 34 in Luke chapter number one. And so it requires the supernatural. And we, we live in an age of where science is the final authority. And so many, many people today don't really believe in a supernatural universe, if you will, and the virgin birth is different for another reason. All the other miracles of the Bible can be uh, affirmed in at least in part by other e- evidence outside evidence, for example, uh, we have we have billions of fossils that remain from the creation period, so There is evidence, extra-biblical evidence, evidence outside the Bible of the creation period from fossils. This is the strongest evidence we have sometimes as creationists. And if you think even of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there were over 500 500 eyewitnesses, over 500 people who saw him alive after his resurrection. But when it comes to the virgin birth, and the, uh, uh, the miraculous conception of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are no witnesses, and there's no fossil evidence. So we are down to the fact of whether or not we believe the Bible because the Bible is the only witness that we have other than the fact I think the life of Jesus Christ later on proves that Jesus Christ had a unique birth. He was an absolutely miraculous and unique person. But it's unique in that sense that there's no corroborating evidence extra-biblical that we can turn to. So we we have to look at this through the lens of Scripture, which is a good thing. Now, in the first hint of the virgin birth in the Bible, you will find it in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 in your Bible. And that is where the Lord is actually speaking to Satan after the fall here, And he says, the seed of the woman is going to bruise your head, Satan. And he uses a term, the seed of the woman. Now, there's no man mentioned in in this passage of Scripture at all, that there's going to come this Messiah figure, and he's going to crush Satan. He's going to destroy evil. However, he's the seed of a woman. No man is mentioned. What makes that really peculiar to us is that in those days, and you can read this in the Bible, they had these long genealogies, these records of birth, but they didn't even mention females in them. It was always a male genealogical table, if you'll notice in your Bible. You go to Chronicles and read those tables, and it's one man beget another man who beget another man who beget another man. You read those tables, you would almost think women had nothing to do with it. And now you come here, and the promise, and it's a hint of what is to come, that the seed of a woman, no mention of a man, there's implied, at least, the hint of a virgin birth here, a supernatural birth. And then we go over to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, and it was quoted for us here in the text that we read, that a virgin one day would give birth to a child and that would be a sign to people. What kind of a sign? It would be the sign that this is a unique man, a unique being. This is going to be the God-man. He's going to be the result of a supernatural conception and a supernatural birth. Now, a Jewish virgin one day is going to conceive That just would blow the minds of those people in the Old Testament there. And yet, that's what the prophet said. And the result of that conception is going to be, his name will be called Emmanuel, it says at the end of the verse. Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. So it takes a virgin birth, a miraculous birth, to bring God into the human stream. Of history. And then we come here to Matthew 1 in verse 19 and 20. And look with me there because you have your Bible open there. And so it, it refers to Joseph as in verse 19 as a just man. And this just man, this righteous man is being addressed by an angel who has appeared to him. Okay, if you believe in, if you have to believe in the supernatural, believe in angels. And so the angel is addressing him, knowing though that he is a righteous man, he is a just man, the text says. And the angel tells him that Mary, who he is engaged to, espoused to, is the old English word here, that Mary is pregnant. And in those days, if you were engaged, engagement, engagement was a much more serious thing than it is today. Engagement in those days required a divorce to break the engagement, and so you had to actually go through a process given in in the Old Testament law to be disengaged. You didn't just hand the person back their ring or the kind of thing we do today. it was a legal uh, relationship and espousal, and so the angel comes and speaks to Joseph and he says. The woman you're engaged to be married to is pregnant. And Joseph immediately, I believe, considers divorcing Mary and ending the whole thing because it says here in Matthew chapter number 1, verse 19, read it with me, Joseph, her husband, being a just man, he is not willing to make her a public example living in that little village of, of Nazareth there. And he was minded or he considered putting her away privately. It us just end the whole thing. Because a natural man, a just man, would even think, well, she has been unfaithful to me during this engagement period. Well, then the angel quickly explains to him, she has not been unfaithful, but this baby that she's carrying in her womb is a product of the Holy Spirit working in her life. And he is using her as a vessel, simply a vessel, a carrier, if you will, to bring the Lord Jesus Christ into the stream of humanity. By the way, the word virgin there, the word virgin has been a very controversial word. Back in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, the, the Hebrew word has the idea of being a young woman, a maiden. And so that was attacked by liberals many years ago. And they basically said, well, it doesn't say she was literally a virgin who had never had a relationship with a man. It says it was a young woman. She might be a virgin, she might not be a virgin. But when you come to the book of Matthew and you look at the word here, that word specifically limits the whole thing to a woman who has never had a sexual relationship. It is a true virgin in the most narrow sense of the word. And then we come to Luke chapter 1 and verse 34 through 37. Really, sometimes people think about, well, what made the birth of Jesus so miraculous? Because it was a normal birth. It was a normal birth that, that Mary experienced there that day. Really, the great miracle occurred before the birth. The miracle was in the conception Now, that she could carry the baby and deliver the baby, still as a virgin, of course, is a miracle in and of itself, but not to the same degree. The miracle was in the conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we look here in verse 34 through 37, and especially in verse number 35 of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Look at it with me, and let's read that again. The angel answered and said, the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you, and the holy thing which shall be born of you shall be called the Son of God. This is spoken by the angel, and this time not to Joseph, but to Mary. Now, the liberals who have sought to undermine and destroy this doctrine from time immemorial, they like to say, and if you read some of the liberal theology, which I've read a little bit of it, not much, but some, They want to say that the virgin birth was a later addition to Christianity, that that the early Christians didn't believe in a virgin birth, that that came along later as the ideas came from paganism. You know, some of the pagan religions believe uh, in Greek mythology and so on. They believe that the gods had a sexual relationship with women and they produced these demigods, if you will. And so uh, they said... The virgin birth wasn't originally believed by the earliest Christians. It it came later in time. Go back to chapter 1 and verse 1 with me. Luke chapter 1 and verse 1. For as much Luke said in his introduction to his book, as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of the things that we most surely believe, even as they delivered them unto us, People who from the beginning were eyewitnesses of the events and ministers of the Word. And Luke here says, they delivered unto us from the beginning the things that they saw as eyewitnesses. In other words, the people from the very earliest point believed in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Luke affirms that here in his, in his writing. So the virgin birth was not a later addition to Christianity. I believe Luke probably talked to Mary in the writing of his gospel. And she told him all about her experience and the angel speaking to her and becoming pregnant then of the Holy Spirit. Now, what the angel really is saying here in verse number 35, and I won't read it again. We've read it a couple of times, but think with me. Here's what he's saying. This thing that is being done in your body, Mary, is a direct act of God. The Holy Spirit will overshadow Mary, and he will produce in her womb this man-child that's going to be born. The Messiah is going to be born. I've read all kinds of debates and arguments that people have had about the virgin birth, and one of the theories people have often had is that, you know, Mary provided the egg, but somehow God provided the sperm. And that's really grotesque. That really is out of character. Uh, that's not what happened. Because had that happened, you still would have had nature uh, Mary's nature passed down to the Lord Jesus Christ. And right here in verse 35 is your proof of that. The entire process... Was a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. It was totally supernatural, totally miraculous. And so the Holy Spirit, in some way that you and I, all we could do would be speculate. We would have no basis in fact at all for it. The Holy Spirit placed that little embryo in the body of Mary and it grew for nine months and the birth was the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've laid out that, and I hope you've gotten a good, solid, biblical uh, base now for uh, why we believe in the virgin birth of Christ. But let me go to the next point, which I think is so important in the times in which we live. Believing in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ tests your worldview. Believing in the virgin birth of Jesus Christ is a test of our worldview. And that here, here's the test. Let me ask you a question. Do you really believe in the supernatural? Do you believe in the supernatural? Do you really believe in miracles? Do you believe that um, there is another dimension beyond the scientific, the material, the physical, the world of seeing tasting, touching, smelling, and all, feeling, and all that? Do you believe there's a a world out there beyond the material world that we live in? Do you really believe that? Because that really is under attack today. Well, if you believe the Bible, you have to believe in the supernatural. After all, what is the first event recorded in the Bible? It's creation. So you've got to believe in the supernatural to believe in, that God in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. If, if you don't believe that, then you just close your Bible and forget it because if you believe, if, if you can't accept the creation account, you sure are not going to be able to accept the virgin birth account. But if you can believe that God had the power in the beginning to speak the worlds into existence, you won't have a whole lot of problem with the virgin birth, I wouldn't think, would you? Now, The Bible, then, is a book of the supernatural. It begins with a miracle. It ends with miracles. The book of Revelation is full of miracles. And when we talk about this, we talk about our our worldview. And your worldview is one of two things. You either do believe in the supernatural or you only believe in the natural. We sometimes, philosophers, talk about that in terms of an open universe, and a closed universe. And what they mean by that is in a closed universe, if you, think of a, if you think of the universe as a box, and everything in the universe fits in that box, and you close the lid, and there's no access to the box. Nobody can get in. Nobody, nothing can get out. Nothing can change inside the box. The, the box is the universe. And the philosophers who believe in a closed system say, well, there's no God intervening in the box. It's just the laws of nature. It's just physical laws. There's matter in the box. There's energy in the box. And That's all there is. That's the universe. And we who believe in an open universe, we believe there's the box is the universe and the top is open. And there's another world above that box. And that world is the world of God and it's the world of the Bible and it's the world of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It's the world of righteousness and goodness and values. It's also the world of evil. It's the world of the devil, the prince and power of the air, all these spiritual forces and dynamics that are involved in that. And we believe in an open universe that God can come and intervene in that universe and do as he wills. And when he does, we call those things miracles. They supersede the, nat- the laws of nature. And so God is involved in the open universe. And today, there's never been a greater time in history. Uh, as I preached on this, I thought, thank you, Lord, that I get to talk about this because there's such a clash of worldviews of the natural versus the supernatural. There was a great, great preacher, philosopher, thinker. His name was Wilbur Smith. He ended up for many years at Moody Bible Institute and Talbot Seminary and, and I think Grace Seminary well-known back in the 30s and 40s and 50s. He passed away in the 60s. Great writer. And I have his book about Jesus Christ. And here's what I copied from his book. And listen to these words. This is profound. Quote, the greatest battle of our modern age is not the one that was fought at Normandy or the one fought beneath the waters of the sea or above the clouds, The greatest battle of our day is the one now being fought by two invisible armies as they struggle to dominate the minds of men. The one army we may rightly call supernaturalism. The other with equal accuracy we shall designate as naturalism. By supernaturalism, we mean a belief in a living, sovereign, omnipotent God and the manifestation of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ as he lived and moved among men on our earth 2,000 years ago. Naturalism, on the other hand, includes every form of philosophy which believes that in the last resort, the basis of all things is physical, whether that, be ba- whether that basis be conceived of as matter or some form of physical energy. Naturalism is a philosophy which insists that science is the only true way of describing reality and that when completed, it will tell us the final truth about the universe. Naturalism persistently denies the supernatural. Naturalism insists that there does not exist any positive evidence warranting man's believing in the supernatural. Science books, for example, almost inevitably make no mention of God. and our history books, when they speak of the age of Christ, they never recognize the miraculous in his life or in his ministry. Naturalism is secularism. Naturalism is atheism. Naturalism is a closed system where people believe the universe came into existence without God and continue to exist without God. And that's the world we live in. That in our universe came into existence without God, and it continues to exist without God. And that science has the answer to every question ultimately. And we Christians stand over here with our Bible in our hand and say, no, 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 no. There is another reality. There's another world above this world. It's the world that the Bible describes, the spiritual world, the supernatural world. And to be very honest, we're sort of dinosaurs with many people in the world who would sort of mock us and scoff at that very idea. And the virgin birth is probably the, the one doctrine more than any other that they would attack with their line of reasoning. When you think about it, now listen carefully to me because this now becomes very practical. This is the downside of technology and what it's done to us as Christians. You see, people have the idea that technology can uh, basically solve. It can do anything. It can solve every problem. And boy, it can solve a lot of problems. I mean, thank God for much of our technology. And we go to the hospital, and where we would have died years ago because there was no available treatment, now they have a treatment, they have a therapy, they have some way to deal with the problem, and, and so we continue to live. And so oh, there's so many aspects of technology that I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for air conditioning in South Carolina, are you not? You don't have to be high-tech even to be thankful for technology. On the other hand, let me tell you what technology cannot do and it never will do. It cannot give people meaning. It cannot answer the question of where do we come from and why are we here and what is our purpose and what does all this mean and where did evil come from, those basic, basic issues That the Bible deals with. That's the main theme of the Bible. Technology can't fill that God-shaped vacuum that we have in our hearts. And so today, I read an article this week that came to my desk in a magazine that I subscribe to. And the magazine told about the hopelessness of our times, that all these things that are happening in our culture, have given people a sense of a a bleak outlook that they really don't see much hope even for uh, living in our society. And and the article elaborated on the, the huge uptick in suicide that's happening today. Not only young people, we hear a lot about young people, but older people. We know it's one of the greatest problems with our veterans that they tell me 30 or 50 veterans every day take their life across America. What is the underlying problem? Let's get to the root of why people commit suicide. And it's really just one root. It's a hopelessness, If there's no hope, then I'm in despair. And it can be for many different reasons, but people are depressed and there's a hopelessness And particularly right now, there's a hopelessness about the state of the world. What is going to happen? We're on this precipice here. War in Ukraine, war in Israel, and in the Middle East, and and weapons of destruction that are so horrible you don't even even want to think about them. The test tube of some virus somewhere in some laboratory in the world could wipe out half the world. And... uh, all the problems of crime and the problems that we're having here in our country, the hatred for various groups of people and so on. And, and it's tamped down our spirits. It's produced a lack of hope. And I want to tell you, if you live in a closed universe, if that box has no way that there's anybody can come in and help with the situation in the world, then we're in pretty bad shape, admittedly. But we don't believe the box is closed. We believe the Lord Jesus Christ is the ruler, the supreme ruler of this universe that, as the old song says, he's got the whole world in his hands. And so we have hope today. But our hope is not in science. Our hope is not in just morality and living a good life. Our hope is supernatural hope. It's hope in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the only one who can provide for us eternal life and hope beyond the grave. This week, I sat by the side of a person who their days are very limited. They know it. Everybody knows it. They're dying. And what a blessing to sit there and hear that person say, I'm ready to go. I know that when it's my time, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take me. I'm going to pass over, and I can't even begin to imagine what it's going to be like over there, but there's a better world waiting me right now. And You see, you can't get that out of technology. You can't get that out of any system that man has ever invented. The supernaturalness of Jesus Christ is our hope. He is the God-man, and because he is The God-man, the virgin birth has to be true. And I have one other point. And that is the importance of the virgin birth. So now that you've seen that your worldview determines today whether you believe this or not, but let's look at why it's important. The virgin birth is so important because the virgin birth was God's way of Jesus becoming a human, without inheriting a sin nature. Now stop and let me read that again. Hear me on this. Why is this so important? The virgin birth was God's plan of Jesus becoming a man, a human, and not inherent a sinful nature. You see, if the virgin birth is not true, then Jesus was just a man. And if he was just a man, He had a sinful nature. And if he had a sinful nature, he couldn't be my Savior. He couldn't die as the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. If the virgin birth is not true, then the Bible has a lie in it. And if it has one overt lie in it, perhaps it has more. The virgin birth is an essential doctrine. It is so important. Back to Luke 1, 34 and 35, the Holy Spirit, verse 35 says, place that embryo in her body, and it grew in the virgin's womb. And Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, who many of you have heard his name, a famous English preacher of 100 years ago, wrote this. The angel answered the biological question. This thing shall be done by a direct act of God, the power of the Most High, the Holy Spirit, wrapping thee round, overshadowing thee, producing in thy womb the man-child, and also by that same act, by that same energy, by that same force, that which is begotten shall be held from the contamination of the sinfulness of thy nature, Mary, and that human nature by the same act of God. Somebody asked me one time a number of years ago, do you have to believe in the virgin birth to be saved? And I I thought later, a lot of people ask me questions as if they want to, um, it's like they're trying to say, how little can I believe and still be a Christian? How little can I believe and, and still get to heaven? And I sensed that in this person, that they were trying to find out, well, do I really have to believe that to be saved? You know, it's, the Bible's really so simple about what it takes to be saved. One, you have to understand that you're lost, that you have sinned, that you, you personally have broken God's law, and that you don't deserve anything, any mercy from God, whatever. But, and, and you secondly have to realize you're helpless to save yourself. That all the good works you could ever do, all the effort you could ever make would not be sufficient to save you. You have to believe that you're a sinner and that you can't save yourself and so you have to look to God. And then thirdly, you have to believe that Christ died on the cross as your substitute. He took your sins upon himself. He was punished for them, and therefore your sins have been punished, and you don't have to be punished for them again. And so if if somebody says, well, I I think I'm a Christian, but I don't know if I believe in in, in the virgin birth of Christ, here would be my statement to you. The Bible doesn't specifically say you have to believe in the virgin birth to be saved. But it does say that the one you believe in must be the divine Savior. So if he's not virgin born, who are you believing in? And here's the, here's the flaw in this whole thing. Christianity is not a set of random beliefs in which people go and pick out what they want to believe. And, you know, I, I'll believe this, but I don't believe that over there. I believe in the vicarious atonement of Christ, but I don't believe in the virgin birth. It's not—it's not a buffet line, spiritually, where you go down the line and say, "I'll have a little of this, but I don't want that." Christianity is a set of truth. Christianity is a truth. It's a system of truth, and that truth is set forth in the Bible. And as I said, it's not for you and me to pick and choose. If you believe the Bible, you have to believe in the virgin birth of Christ. It is clearly taught. And so I believe in the virgin birth because my Bible teaches it, but I believe in it for one other reason. I don't have time to elaborate, but it's a very important point. I believe in it because I look at the life of Jesus Christ, the only perfect, sinless man who ever lived. A man who had power over the seas, who had power over the animals, who had power over death, could raise people from the dead, who had power over every disease, never met a person he couldn't heal. I look at this wonderful life, a unique life, and I think he was not born like other men because other men couldn't ever do what he did. Now, what are you going to do with what I've said about the virgin birth today? Well, number one, you could reject it and say, I just don't believe that stuff. It is superstition. It's mythology. It's just like the ancient pagans, and you could just reject it. Or number two, let me tell you, here's here's something that's really relevant. I hope you'll catch on what I'm saying. Back in the 20s, what we call liberalism, modernism, they called it then, liberalism came in, which and chose what parts of the Bible it would believe. And by and large, mainline Protestant Christianity bought the idea that we don't have to believe in the supernatural parts of the Bible. We will believe in spirituality without the supernatural. And by the way, you can go to many churches right here in this city today and you won't hear preaching on the virgin birth and the shed blood of Jesus Christ and a literal physical, visible resurrection. You will hear an ethical, moralistic, "You folks need to live a good life." That'll be the extent of what you'll hear. You'll be, it's the Bible stripped to the supernatural. The biblical, historic, classical, fundamental Christianity says, you don't have Christianity if you don't have the miracles and the supernatural. And leading that is the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can reject it, or you can try to hold on to the spirituality of the Bible, its moral and ethical teaching, and still deny the supernatural. Or number three, you can believe it. And in our age, if you believe it, You may get to defend it because there's a lot of people today that they chaff at the idea of supernaturalism. So which category are you in? You reject it? Or you say, I think Christianity is a good ethical moral system, but I don't know if I can accept all this God intervening in history stuff. Or you can say, I believe it. My Savior was the virgin born. Son of God, just like the Bible states, our heads are bound.